I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. those of you who are already part of the Talking About Our Generation family, welcome back. And for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. This podcast is all about connection, sharing, caring, communicating, aimed at baby boomers like me, those of us born between 1946 and 1964. We're about remembering who we were and what we've accomplished and what all that means today, right now, because that conversation is really important. We launched last year on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock because that was an event that had a major influence on our generation. So we started with a series called the Woodstock Episodes, which are conversations with people who made Woodstock happen and who created that amazing, magical Woodstock spirit that still lives on in many of us today. Soon, we'll be airing our 51st anniversary of Woodstock episode, and we have a very special guest in store for you. We'll talk about that later in this episode, but right now, we invite you to listen in on our conversation with Lisa Law. Lisa has been a photographer since the days of Haight-Ashbury, probably even before that, and she was also part of the hog farm that was responsible for feeding nearly 200,000 Woodstock attendees. If there is one word I would use to describe Lisa, it's driven. If these were the days of the Old West and we were heading from East to California, I would want Lisa driving the lead wagon and the wagon train. Join me now in my conversation with Lisa. You started documenting events and movements with your camera way before Woodstock back in the Christy Minstrel days, the Lovins in San Francisco, and Haight-Ashbury. Mm-hmm. You were the witness. Through your eyes, we got to see a lot of the life from those times in the 60s, and not just the musicians, but the culture, the things that you covered were iconic. I, I documented every part of my life, and I was really lucky to be at the right place at the right time. I was there for the communes, for the Haight-Ashbury, for Woodstock, Monterey Pop. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time with my husband. And uh, while I was traveling around on my hippie bus, we have this big giant hippie bus fixed up and it's psychedelic. I still drive it today. It's out of my uh, driveway. I was able to have a dark room in the bus. So I was always printing and developing and I was able to share those with other people. And I felt it was important to share how beautiful uh, the hippies were and what their ideas were. Back to the land and natural childbirth and eating good food and recycling and all those values that are so important today were started in the 60s. So let's talk about the hog farm. Was the hog farm a commune? A hog farm is a commune of uh, like people that chipped in and did helped out with it, and it worked great. The, the hog farm is still a commune. Okay, they still have uh, a ranch up in uh, Laytonville, and they still run Camp Winter Rainbow with Wavy Gravy and Johanna Ra. 
their commune lasted because they really worked at it. Okay. So they're the one, they went to Woodstock. We got, what happened was, is Wavy was living down at the bottom of this hill in Tahanga with his wife. And the pranksters with Ken Kesey came and uh, they stayed overnight with him. They were in the bus. In the morning, the, the owner said, get out. I don't want all these people. And just at that point, there was a um, fellow up the hill that had a hog farm and he had a heart attack. And he asked them if they would come up and slop the hogs. So the whole group of the Wavy and his few people and then the pranksters all went up to the top of the mountain there and slopped the hogs. Okay, so they had some shacks and they built some more shacks. They had some buses. They were living in the buses. And they all, they would go out and get jobs and come back and bring the money. And they all lived communally there. Uh-huh. They built these shacks and stuff to live in. I mean, the weather was good. And uh, and then on Saturdays, they would have a, like a party and they'd invite everybody up from the valley and they had a tiny Tim singing there and they had a hog rodeo where they painted the hogs. It was a mixture of men and women and young people and older people. And then they were all just a bunch of fuck ups trying to keep it together. <laughs> so how did you get involved in being a part of the hog farm? Well, we were in uh, in L.A., the same time Wavy was doing the hog farm. We're friends with Wavy. So we were always up there hanging out with them. But we traveled around with them. So we, were, we knew what they were up to and what they could do. And, uh, and we stayed there and, and we helped out with the cooking and planting. But that's when Stan Goldstein, who was one of the producers of Woodstock, came and said to Wavy, we want your group to help out in at this concert in New York because your group is very familiar with LSD and people who take it and what happens to them and what they need. And, you're, and you know how to fend for yourselves. You know how to build things. You know how to fix things. You, you know, so you know how to run things. You know how to cook in groups, okay? The lady said, okay, we'll go. Of course, we were part of the hog farm, so we went, too. And they sent a jumbo jet, American Airlines jumbo jet for us. There was uh, 80 of us and um, 15 Native Americans. So we arrived at Kennedy Airport, and we were met by camera crews, lights, reporters asking questions, and we couldn't believe it. We were famous already. We were just arriving. So we were whisked off in big, comfortable buses. And we got there, and we brought two teepees, two, one giant teepee and uh, our teepee. And it was separate. Here's, here's the main area, and then there's a forest, and then there's some more space over here. Over here, the hog farm set up their encampment. And they'd already started. They made a dome, and they are already starting feeding everybody that was coming. A lot of people were coming right away before it was even started. A lot of groups. And communes, and there were various people who were coming, and they wanted to be part of it. I mean, it was a major event. So we had a meeting, okay? And we're all sitting around talking about what we're going to do to help out because they said we are security. And at that meeting, they were talking about scrounging up some pots and pans and 
and getting some food and stuff like that to cook. And I said, you guys, you have no idea what's going to happen. I said, look at all the people that are here now. That's not even started yet. It's two weeks away. I know that you ended up playing a really essential role, like John Morris said when we interviewed him, deciding how much food was going to be needed and how much money would be needed to buy the food and getting the food and preparing the food. And you were heavily involved in all of that. Yeah. Well, I'd already been cooking for huge groups of people in L.A., catering. I said, I think I should go in and get some money and go buy a bunch of food. So I went into his trailer and I said, John, can you give me $3,000? I need it to, you want to feed all these people? You got to feed these people because they're not going to bring their food. They're not going to bring their food. They're going to come here thinking it's all set up for them. So we need to feed them. Okay, so why don't you give me 3000 and a truck? And that's why John Morris says, oh, she really intimidated me. And he tells that story. Every time he tells that story. So Peter White Rabbit and I drove into New York and we went to Greenblatt's. We bought 1,200 pounds of rolled oats, 1,200 pounds of bulgur wheat, currants, dried apricots, almonds, honey, soy sauce, uh, wheat germ, stuff like that. And I made the muesli. Then I bought. Then I went in the next day. I had the food, but I didn't have the the pots and pans. So I went back into the office in New York and asked John and Joe if I could have another three thousand. They called John Morris and he said yes. Give her what she wants, and I took that and I bought giant stainless steel pots, giant stainless steel bowls, cleavers. In fact, my the cleavers were in the New York Times last year during the anniversary, the pictures of the cleavers, and because I still have them. And uh, <clears throat> onion cutters, 35 plastic trash cans to mix the muesli in, and 130,000 paper plates, 130,000 Dixie cups, and 130,000 forks and spoons. So when I drove back with Peter, I actually had a truckload of kids that were hitchhiking. And uh, we uh, they helped us unload and stack it in the tent. We had a tent next to the kitchen. They had finished building the kitchen, which was very nice. And they were finishing building the food booths. The food booths had, you could stand in the middle and serve on the right and serve on the left. So it actually was 10 lines. So that I knew that would work. Because if you had a lot of people coming, you need a lot of lines, okay? So we we set up the stoves. I got little stoves, gas tanks, and we started cooking. And immediately these kids in the area took over. They put on their aprons, and that's it. That's what they did. I didn't have to cook anymore. I just brought it, and they, they did it. But everybody helped out while they were cooking. I took a flatbed truck, and I went to the farms. And I said, give me that row of onions, that row of corn, that row of carrots. And I got all this food. I would buy an entire farm, put it on the truck, bring it over, and then they'd cut it up and they'd serve it with the bulgur wheat. And that was lunch and that was dinner. So then Wavy Gravy got up and he said, um, What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400000 Now... It's not going to be steak and eggs or anything, but it's going to be good food, and we're going to get it to you. It's not just the hog farm either. 
It's like the old High Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. We pulled up a flatbed truck loaded with the trash cans full of muesli and the Dixie cups. And we'd dig in and we'd go and deliver it to people sitting in there, sitting in front of the stage because people didn't want to get up. They didn't want to give up their seat. A lot of people didn't even, couldn't even find each other. I mean, they were <laughs> looking for each other. They couldn't find each other. But they, they wanted those seats there, okay? They were going to have those seats. And so we went out and started delivering. And then I got on the stage and I said, uh, if you guys are really hungry, uh, you could go over to the hog farm. I'll feed you over there. There's a lot of food over there. Okay. Okay, here it comes. Mess call. I just found a picture and I just put it on my Facebook of the lines, huge lines. And so they, they moved over there. They slowly trickled over there and got in line and then they knew they could come back. And everybody I run into now who says, I was in Woodstock, I say, did you eat at the hog farm? Yes, I ate at the hog farm. They fed me a lot. Yeah, what did you eat? And they'd tell me. The people weren't too into the muesli. <laughs> But I didn't have time to cook it. And that's when Wavy called it granola. But it was actually muesli. So then I was known as the granola queen because I'm the one who created that. That's funny. It, it, you know, it's like thousands of people. I mean, when do you see thousands of people taking care of each other when it's pouring rain? And they're all, you know, helping each other out and feeding each other. And, and, and then we're able to feed them. I mean, the hog farm got to feed them. That was so exciting. The hog farm got to feed these. I figured 200,000 people we fed. So did you feel like, did it hit you that you were photographing history in the making? I well, mean, I, I, I photograph everything that makes me emotional. If, it's, if it makes me emotional, I photograph it. Right. What did you see at Woodstock that gave you that feeling that you felt compelled to photograph? Uh, one of the great shots was when uh, the medical tent started to blow down uh, in the storm on Friday and all these people got up and grabbed the sides of the medical tent and held it from flying away because all these people were inside that were being taken care of. Basically it has to do with sharing, buying the food, unloading the boxes, showed the people cooking, uh, cutting up the food feeding everybody. 
I just wanted to capture those moments. That, to me, that was much more important than shooting any groups that were on the stage. That's where the true essence of Woodstock was shown. I mean, I have pictures of Tom teaching yoga over at the hog farm camp. I have Joan Baez on the free stage. I thought that was great that she came over to the free stage. I have a lot of people that came from New York who didn't get to the big stage. They were hanging out with the hog farm, making their own music and fixing the food and hanging out together. And that was, it was the, the humanistic part of Woodstock is what I was focusing on. Like one guy was tripping out and he kept grabbing on to hog farmers and saying, Where's my mother? Where am I? And they were helping him and talking to him. So I photographed that because it was so wonderful how these guys, these hog farmers, were taking care of people that were tripping out. We uh, had these armbands with a flying pig on them, printed on them, the red armbands. And if you wore a red armband, you were told off the stage that if you see a red armband person and you need help because you're on a bad trip or whatever, grab those guys, they're gonna help you. So when they asked us how many armbands we wanted, we told the promoters we wanted 250,000 armbands because we felt that once we started helping people, other people would start helping people. And, and everybody was wearing an armband, everybody would be helping everybody else. And that's what the Woodstock generation is based on, is the fact that we all took care of each other at Woodstock. So I would film that. I would film the mud, Abby Hoffman taking care of the medicine for the medicine tents, doctors working on people uh, with cut toes and stuff like that. Anything that was happening that showed what was really happening at Woodstock I either photographed or shot with the Super 8 camera. Tom putting up the first teepee at Woodstock was my last shot on that roll. That is a wonderful photograph, by the way. It's becoming one of the most important pictures of Woodstock now, I'm finding out. It reminds me of the Iwo Jima photograph with the soldiers putting up the flag. Uh-huh. But that image is of our generation or of the Woodstock Nation. It, it's really quite an incredible image. So, so Lisa, let me ask you, what, what do you think in our world today is left of Woodstock? Is anything left of it in the sense of beyond our memories and this anniversary? Is it still in our lives in any way? It still lives on today. The people really want it take care of each other. That's an example. I go to Yalapa, Mexico. I've been going there forever because it's like a piece of paradise and there's no cars. You can only get there by boat. I really cared about the history of this little town, okay, because I know the people, I've gotten to know the people there and I have friends there. Okay, they're natives from there, fishermen, farmers, and I've been documenting this. So I have a lot of people I know there and I've, I'm able to come into this little village and help them. Uh, by doing the museum, okay, there I was, with no money, 
but I had the pictures. So a young lady who had money said, I'm going to back you. And another guy said, let me give you my crew. And he gave me his crew and she backed it. And I went out and worked on this museum to make it happen. It took five months to make it happen. I actually work with archaeologists now for all the items that I have been putting in the cases. And I've helped them so much. They're like on their own now. And now I do the museum so they have their history. What's the connection between your life in the 60s and Woodstock and this draw to Yolapa? Obviously, you're the connection, but in your soul, in your being, what, what is the connection? What is the through line? I feel about myself that I'm helping create a vibration that's positive. I think I was given that gift to understand what had to happen. Whatever I can do to help, wherever I am drawn, whatever I am drawn to. Like, I was asked if I could drive aid to El Salvador. Oh, okay. What do you need? Could you be one of the cameramen and drive 14 trucks with 14 trucks to, to, to give aid to El Salvador? Sure, I'll do that. Okay. Anything that somebody asks me or points it out to me, I'll do it. Okay. And then I really get into it. So I drove to El Salvador and I documented all the homeless people because our armies were supporting, they were, they were fighting against the FMLN, but their own armies would go in and rape and hurt these people that were talking to the FMLN. And we had to stop it. That was our job. We made a movie. We took to Congress and we were out of El Salvador in one year because of it. Wherever I feel the need to help in a situation like that and, and also in, uh, in Peru when they had the giant floods and the people's beds were floating down the river, I said, well, what do you need? And uh, they said 120 beds and 240 blankets. And I said, okay. So I would go online. I'd get the money from my friends on Facebook. The money would come in. I would then buy 120 beds and the 240 blankets and deliver it to them and food and help them with the kitchen. It seems like you've been in service forever. It sounds like what, what you're describing now is what you were describing about Woodstock. Yeah, I'm a force to be reckoned with, to tell you the truth. <laughs> there are people that still want to celebrate what Woodstock stood for. And they all want what you're talking about. How can we make that happen today? How can we let the world know we care about them? Today, the world doesn't look anything like it did back then. And of course, time changes everything. But the philosophy that we had, people doing things together for a common good, that almost seems to be a rarity today, that we seem to be a society that thinks more about the me than the we. It's ridiculous what's going on. It's the opposite of what should be happening. But then if you look at Black Lives Matter, it's very much like the 60s. People are coming out. They find a cause that they really believe in. They put their masks on and they get out and they demonstrate and seriously demonstrate. Okay. What's horrible is the fact that these police are doing things they shouldn't be doing. And that has to be ended. It has to stop. They have to stop killing people, you know, for nothing, okay? 
So these kids are getting out there and saying, look, you can't do this. You can't do this to these people and you can't, you can't be a racist. You know, you know, everything, listen, all the statues of the conquistadors here in New Mexico are down. Okay. They've been taken down because they're racist because it shows the conquistadors lording it over the Indians that are here, the native Americans. I think there's a lot of groups right now that are trying to help with these problems on the border refugee camps, problems in other parts of the world with the, all the wars and trying to help these people get money to them and food to them. And I think there's still that vibration happening amongst the people. And I think there's a lot of people helping with that. The real stuff is coming out because people have so much time on their hands. Okay. And they can think about this and they can think about friendships and they can think about the important things in their life now. They're not just out running around and going shopping and going doing this and that. They are now staying home and thinking about things. You're seeing just the beginning of that. Everything's going to change now. So it's beautiful what's happening. What do you think that we can do, our generation, to encourage that and to make that be not only a little, but a lot? Do you think that most people who are older are just saying, oh, just let the young people deal with it and make change happen? Or is there something, is there a role that we can play? Maybe it's not the same thing as demonstrating in marches, but for example, how do you see yourself in this massive movement that we haven't seen in decades? Well, I'm an elder and you, I guess, would be an elder too. Well, I'm a baby boomer, yeah. And people are now listening to elders. People have more time now to listen. They didn't have so much time to listen before. And they need to be respected. The elders need to be respected. And I think they are being respected. So what I'm, I'm looking at now is now I'm looking back at my life. Finally, I've gotten to the point of, okay, I did the museum. I've done all these other things. Now I turn around and I look at that. I'm doing two books on my trips to India right now. I just took two trips and a, and a book on the making of the museum in Yalapa. But now I'm turning around. All of a sudden, I'm turning around and looking at my life. And I said, you better write about it. Nobody's going to know about it. Because all these pictures are sitting in drawers over here. El Salvador, nobody's ever seen those pictures. Nobody's ever seen the pictures of Peru and, and, and helping these poor people that didn't have beds that are living it with their animals on the floor in the mud. And I mean, it was horrible. And a lot of people are making statements and speaking up. You got to speak up. Do you think things like uh, social media and Facebook has made us all complacent and just like we can click something that we think is bad or horrible and then just move on with our day? Don't just look at the things on Facebook, but act on them. You can't just sit back and watch Facebook. You have to do something about it. You you got to you got to got out and do something. Send the money and help the people there on the border. Send food because there they are for you. It's good. Social media is good, but you have to act on it. You can't just say, "Oh, I see that's happening." Hmm? You got to act. I agree a hundred percent. We have to act. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for chatting with us on Talking About Our Generation. I'm looking and forward to hearing this. It's going to be great. 
All right. Well, listen, you take care and be safe. And we look forward to talking with you again soon, Lisa. I thank you very much. Bye bye. What I loved about talking with Lisa Law is her will to move forward, to make things happen. She's that unusual blend of tough with a heart of gold. You can read more about Lisa Law on our website where you will find links to some of her work. Now it's time to hear some comments from our listeners. Hi, my name is Susan Linty and I live in Angeles Oaks, California. I love this series, this podcast. It was fascinating meeting people that were in the background at Woodstock, but made it happen. It reminded me of the good old days when it was about peace and love and coming together. And uh, I think we're supposed to be in the age of Aquarius, but it's having a hard time coming out. But anyway, thanks a lot for doing it, guys. I really liked it, and it's great. Thank you. This is Arlene Wong calling from San Diego, California. I just finished listening to podcasts three and four. Each podcast is getting better and better. It's great. Although not a hippie, my friends and I were all about the music in college. My kids cannot believe that I loved Hendrix and Santana as well as John Sebastian and Love and Spoonful. There was a real sense of community and caring. The idea of ecology and responsibility for the earth took hold in our college days as well. And I clearly remember the very first Earth Day. Thank you for your efforts to promote community and a sense of camaraderie among us, Julian and Rob. This podcast reminds us how being gentle with each other is a good thing. Thanks. Being gentle with each other is a good thing, especially the way the world is right now. And thank you, Arlene, for reminding us of that, and Susan for your comments. It lets us know that we are on the right track. Thank you. If you would like to comment on one of our episodes, or your own Woodstock experience, or just on being a baby boomer, record your comments using the voice recorder on your smartphone. Start by telling us your name and where you're from, and we'll do our best to include them in a future episode. If you're still not sure how to record your comment, we have some links on our website that will take you through it, whether you're using an iPhone or an Android. It's simpler than you might think, so don't be intimidated by the technology. Show that tech who's boss. You can send your voice memo recording to OurGen2019 at gmail.com. That's O-U-R-G-E-N-2019 at gmail.com. Now, back to that special guest I mentioned on our 51st anniversary Woodstock episode. We'll be talking with none other than the godfather of Woodstock 69, Michael Lang. We promise it will be a fascinating and informative conversation, so make sure to listen in. Finally, I would like to give a shout out to a few people without whom this show wouldn't be possible. Rob Wilson, our multi-talented director, and Billy Aldridge, who has written and provided some of the music for today's episode. Lisa Law set her own path, as many of us did, and some of us are still working on doing. It's a never-ending process, 
We weren't the same as our parents, God love them. We were different. Here's Something Different by Matt Boyd and GLNGR. You look at me like I'm crazy When I shut my feelings out You look at me like I'm different Still you stay cause you feel something real Get so lost in my moments Doesn't mean I don't need you I, I, I fell in love with your colors They kinda tell me what I'm thinking Fell in love with the way we are And the way we lose it There's something different about us And the reason why we stay There's something different about the way we are touch and stay safe everybody thanks for listening i'm julian g simmons covid19 is spreading in the united states and leaving your home increases your chances of getting and spreading the virus 
Stay home except to get groceries, medications, or other essentials. Check state or local government guidance for where you are. If you must leave the house for essential items, take the following steps to help avoid the spread of COVID-19. Maintain social distance, approximately 6 feet or 2 meters from others. Wear a cloth face covering in public. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work. For purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.